I'm pulling away from the curb. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. And I had to take my daughter to the bus stop. Okay, so we are uh, in the middle of a series talking all about Alpha Beta Unlimited. So we can continue. Uh, last week left, we were in the Ks. So we'll start off with Keldon Warlord. So Keldon Warlord costs two red red, so four mana, two of which must be red. It was a summon lord, and it was a star star creature. So its power and toughness is equal to the number of creatures you control, or as it said on the card, uh, on your side. Um, I talked a lot about how most of the effects that uh, Richard had done in Alpha were uh, global, like, you know, all your goblins get plus one, plus one. Um, but in this particular card, this card was very much about how many creatures do you have. This is as big as the number of creatures you have on your side. Um, so, a couple things about Kelvin Warlord. First off, um, this card was a pretty popular card. Um, the funny thing is, as time went on, we kept changing what, where this went. Uh, I'm not sure why Richard put it in red. Uh, I, I think he was just trying to make cool cards, and I don't think probably he was thinking about larger color pie mechanical issues quite as... He, he sort of just put things where they, they logically made sense to him or felt right. Um, we later put this ability in green, as green was the creature color, and then we shifted it to white because white was the small creature color, the army color. And so right now this ability sits in white. Um, also notice this is a summon lord. Lord is a uh, creature type that we've since... I mean, they still exist, I think. I think these cards still say lord on them. But we no longer make new lords. Not sure why. Um, I, I, like I said last time, we, we used to do king, and uh, we don't really have any creature types that sort of imply I, I'm a ruler or I have some sort of, you know, I'm a monarch or something. I, anyway, I'm, I'm not quite sure what happened to Lord, but I know Lord went away. Um, but anyway, this was, this was definitely one of those cards that uh, was very appreciated. Oh, the other neat thing about this design, just as a designer, I guess I have to point out, is... Um, one of the cool things is it's a star, star design, but because it gets to count itself, you don't have to do, like, star, star plus one, or do a one, one that gets a bonus whenever there's something, because it just gets to count itself. So, if it's the only creature in play, it doesn't die, it's a one, one, because it counts itself. So, anyway, that's pretty cool. Next, Lay Druid. So, Lay Druid costs two and a green, so three mana total, one of which is green. Summon Cleric, one, one. Uh, and then you can tap it to untap a land. And then it had the little rider play as an interrupt. Um, basically, anything that produced mana had to have a line that said, hey, I can be done like an interrupt because otherwise you couldn't actually use your mana to do things. Um, for those that are unfamiliar, I talked about this a little bit. Uh, the way magic worked in the, before 6th edition rules is if I cast an instant, uh, interrupts happen you couldn't respond to interrupts except with interrupts. So instants could be cast at any time, except you couldn't cast instants in response to interrupts. So if I cast an instant and you cast an interrupt, I could cast an interrupt to stop your interrupt or mess with your interrupt, but I couldn't cast an instant to do it. Um, and it definitely had a lot of quirky things that went on. But one of the things that was important was because we wanted to make sure the cards that got you access to mana... Um, had the ability to get the mana when you needed it, it created this weird thing where, like, Lay Druid's a good example where, okay, a lot of the times this is going to untap land, land's going to get you mana, so the reason this, that this is an interrupt is because we wanted to get you mana. But there are effects on lands. And so 
The fact that this was an interrupt meant sometimes you could untap lands and interrupt speed, which was quirky. Like, the idea that you can't stop me getting my mana made sense, but the idea that sometimes you can't stop me doing things that normally would be instance, but they just happen to be tied to something in which one component of it couldn't be, be getting mana, or, or you know, countering a spell or something. Anyway, one of the big ch- reasons we changed over from the instant interrupt system to the current stack system was there was a lot of non-intuitive things that would happen. There's a lot of times we're like, I want to do something. Nope, you can't. Why can't I? Well, this is technically an interrupt, and that's not an interrupt, so you can't interact. Okay, so Lay Druid has an interesting history. Lay Druid is thought of as being a pretty um, not-so-powerful spell, but it actually showed up in uh, one copy in the winning deck of Zach Dolan of the very first winning... Uh, World's Deck, 1994. And a lot of people at the time, I know, laughed at it. Like, what was that going doing? Um, but I remember I had an interesting chat with um, with uh, John Finkel. So at the Invitational in uh, Sydney, we did what we called uh, Contest of the Champions. Um, or no, con- that's right. Uh, uh, well, the idea was... Uh, we took winning decks. We took 16 or 17 uh, Pro Tour slash World winning decks and we let players um, draft them. Um, oh, it's uh, sorry, Auction of the Champions is what it's called. Because it later be Auction of the People when the people win the decks. Um, and John Finkel ended up getting Zach Dolan's original World deck. And he got it at a really good price because everybody... The, the, the interpretation is... That a lot of people think that Zach's deck was kind of a wacky deck because he had like one later and things like that. Um, and what John said is when he played it, he goes, One, look, it has powerful cards from a time where Magic just had really powerful cards. And second, it, it works together. All these cards do, in fact, combo together. Like, one of the reasons I think Laidrood was in the deck was like he had a Library of Alexandria, which I believe you can untap with. So, Library of Alexandria allowed you to, t- if you have. Um, I think seven cards in your hand lets you draw a card. Well, if you had Library Alexander, you could draw a card, and then you could play one of your cards, and then untap it with Laidruid, and then draw another card. So there, there's a lot of combinations that the Laidruid wasn't quite uh, a little more potent than you realize when you actually watch how the deck came together. There were a lot of combos in the deck, and so I think Laidruid's got a got a bad rap. Um, the other thing Laidruid does, by the way is we don't tend to talk too much about mana and how mana works and the ley lines and it's kind of thing that every once in a blue moon we mention, but uh, I like that Ley Druid is right there sort of bringing to your face the idea that he, you know, he taps into the ley lines to get the mana. Um, also notice, by the way, that he's a cleric and not a druid. Druid would, druid's now a supported type um, and probably in the grand update, uh, creature type update change, he became a druid since druid's in his name. Um, but at the time, we didn't have druids, we just had clerics. Okay, next, Lightning Bolt. Lightning Bolt is an instant for a single red mana that deals three damage to target creature or player. Um, so this is the boon for red. Um, this is actually, I guess, alphabetically the final boon. We've already seen Ancestral Recall, Dark Ritual, Giant Growth, Healing Salve, and now Lightning Bolt. So Lightning Bolt is, I guess, an interesting argument. I, I, in my mind, is the third most powerful of the boons. Clearly, Ancestral Recall is first. I think Dark Ritual is second. Um, and the reason I say that is we were willing to bring back Lightning Bolt for a small amount of time, and I don't think we're willing to bring back Dark Ritual. So that's my guess of why Lightning Bolt. So Lightning, what happened with Lightning Bolt is we had it for a while, 
It's really, really good. We ended up turning it. We, we made shock, which was uh, for single red, do two damage. Um, and even shock is, is there's a big question of we, we've made cards worse than shock. Um, we did bring lightning bolt back for a little while. We surprised everybody. It was in uh, Magic 2010 as kind of it. No one expected it to return. Um, it really. As a designer, I'm not a big fan of Lightning Bolt because it just really warps what you can do. It really bends the environment around it, and it makes it hard to make cheap um, direct damage. It really makes it hard to make direct damage that just doesn't look horrible because um, it's so top, top tier, and a lot of your cards can't be top tier. But, man, it makes the, the, the low-cost stuff just look, I don't know, pretty... pretty. Uh, it, it makes it hard to design around. Um, Lightning Bolt's pretty iconic. It, it's... Uh, um, I, I remember uh, one of my coworkers, Michael Donay, Mike Donay, who worked in R&D for a long time, collected lightning bolts, and he had every copy of every different version of lightning bolt you've ever seen. It's actually quite impressive. Every language, every promotional thing we've done, and everything, every version of lightning bolt. Um, but anyway, that was his collection. He had a collection of lightning bolts, so that was pretty cool. Okay, we move on to Land of War Elves. So Land of War Elves cost a single green mana, summon elves. It's a one-one and it could tap for one green mana. So the interesting question is, um, when you go back and you... T- like, one of the things about Alpha that, that I, I always talk about is um, how the creatures... The creatures, when the game began, were just a lot weaker than creatures are now. And one of the ways of that is there are many, many cards, there are many non-creature cards that we could never reprint in a standard legal set. It would just cause all sorts of problems. Um, and the idea is there's really not too much we can't bring back from Alpha... I mean, the fact that Land of War Elves is one of the cards right now that's kind of like, uh, you know, we, we, we've pushed away from the one-drop mana production. It just, I, I know that um, one of the things that Eric and all the developers are working on is trying to get the right, make standard have the right timing to it, that things happen around the, the you know, that if anything is too fast, it just accelerates the whole environment. And then people, you know, if, if the threat ends up being on turn three or turn four or whatever, it just, it warps the environment. So, um, right now, Llanowar Elves isn't in standard. Um, kind of like Lightning Bolt. Like, it's the kind of thing that, man, maybe in the right environment if we work around it. But once again, Light Lightning Bolt, it really does warp the environment around it. That having Llanowar Elves really, you have to, you have to, the environment has to take into account that, that it exists. Um, so Llanowar Elves, uh, once again, had a wonderful picture by Anson Maddox. Um, it was definitely an early... It was one of the cards that, that people sort of latched on early, in, and it really was a staple card for a long time. Um, the, it, it went away only... Re- well, we originally changed it because uh, it was quirky that it was plural elves when we don't do a lot of plural, and so we changed it to a non-plural elf. Um, that change wasn't... Uh, one of the things in general you discover is when we take cards and we're trying to change things, people have a lot of, of uh, you know belovedness for old things that have been around forever and so I know when we switched over to Lateral Elves that didn't go particularly well um, and then we the one drop right now is, is not in standard so um, a lot of this is a good example of a card that is a lot more powerful than people realize because it seems kind of innocuous like oh it just taps for one mana what does that mean and it's like well why is a mox valuable it's like it speeds up your mana production and okay Lateral Elves isn't as good as a mox it requires mana to cast. It can be killed as a creature, you know. But it just, you know, when you have things that allow you to sort of skip ahead of when you can play things, that is pretty potent. The mana system is, is a pretty important part of what keeps magic balanced. And things that allow you to sort of 
hop frog and you know leap frog stuff and just get there quicker, you know, definitely is is a lot more potent than you realize. And Lamar Elves is a when you talk about strong creatures from Alpha, um, I don't think people list Lanor Elves near the top, but I, I believe it actually is. Okay, Lord of Atlantis. So Lord of Atlantis is blue-blue, so two mana, both of which are blue, for Summon Lord, or Summon Lord of Atlantis. It's a 2-2, and all merfolk in play gain Island Walk and plus one, plus one, while this card is in play. That's what it said. Um, so basically what it did is it was a Lord for merfolk. Uh, all merfolk, not just your merfolk. Um, and uh, it was very popular. Th- this card is quirky for a couple things. One is, it has a real-world reference in it. Uh, Atlantis. Atlantis is an Earth thing. Um, we've been very hand-wavy about what Atlantis means in Dominaria. And sort of like... Uh, it's one of the reasons that the, the card is kind of tricky is that early on, Richard was a little more... He made a little more sort of Earth references in general. And since then, we've kind of retrofitted them. So most of them are retro... Retro-reconned them, I guess. Uh, so they're not quite... They're referencing the Dominaria things or in-plane things and not actual Earth things. Um, the other quirky thing about this card is technically... Well, I think for a long time it wasn't a merfolk. It was a lord and not a merfolk. Although if you look at the picture, it's got a tail. It's a, it's a merfolk. So I think we eventually eroded these to be of the creature type, like Goblin King and, and Lord Atlantis, to be of the creature type, but not to affect themselves. So like I think the card now in Oracle says all other merfolk... Um, all other merfolk yet. Um, we've also shifted away um, from the global, for lords that are global, and now the lords affect your stuff and not everybody's stuff. Next, Lord of the Pit. Four, black, black, black. Seven mana, three of which is black. Summon demon, seven, seven. Flying trample. So, uh, so the card said, sacrifice one of your own creatures during your upkeep, or Lord of the Pit deals seven damage to you. Um, it's not still allowed to attack. If it does damage, as long as either you have to feed it one of your creatures or it's going to do damage to you, it still is allowed to attack. Some creatures sometimes, if you don't pay the upkeep, it sort of locks itself down and you can't use it. You can still use Lord of the Pit. Um, so this card was interesting. It was a very flavorful card and pretty popular for being not that powerful a card. Having to feed it a creature every turn is actually a pretty big deal. Um, I know... There are some decks that instead of feeding it, what they would do is they would use Circle of Protection Black or something. They, they would make a deck in which they'd protect itself from the damage of the Lord rather than feeding the Lord. It's another way to do it. Um, but Lord of the Pit was, well, the, actually the biggest creature in Alpha was a creature called Force of Nature that was an 8-8. Um, Lord of the Pit was the second largest as a 7-7. Seven, seven. Uh, and then in Antiquities, we would, we would get to a 9-9 Colossus of Zardia that I've actually talked about a couple times. Um, there's a little game we played for a while where we kept one upper stuff making a little bit bigger. We, have, we, have, we, have, we haven't actually played that game in a little while, but for a while I was like, there's a 7-7, there's an 8-8, there's a 9-9, there's a 10-10, there's an 11-11, there's a 12-12. Um, but anyway, Lord of the Pit is definitely, I think, a good example of um, how you can use a downside in a way that people like. Because in general, players don't like downsides. But if the downside is just really flavorful the audience is much more accepting of it. It's like, oh, it's a demon, and you got to feed the demon creatures. And like, oh, it's kind of cool. Got to feed the demon creatures. Okay, next. Magical Hack. Okay, so Magical Hack is an interrupt. Uh, you can change the text of any card being played or already in play by replacing land by replacing a land type with, an, with another. For example, change Swamp Walk to Planeswalk. The thing that's funny about that is 
Swamp Walk was pretty prevalent, and, and Planes Walk, I don't even think existed. Like, their example uses, I think the first Planes Walk showed up in Legends. So it's kind of funny that it, uh, its example is like Swamp Walk, you know, Bogworth existed, um, to Planes Walk, which does, like, it's kind of, maybe they're just trying to say, hey, look at the neat things you can do. Planes Walk, that doesn't even exist, but you can make it. Um, so Magical Hack, the idea was, um, there was a card called Sleight of Mind and Magical Hack. They were, they were two sort of companion cards. Both of them were interrupts. Um, and they were interrupts so you could affect spells getting cast and stuff. Like the idea of this spell was, let's say someone casts um, a spell to like destroy all islands or something. You could change islands to whatever lands they were playing and destroy their lands. Um, that, that was the idea of why it was an interrupt. Um, it definitely did some quirky things because once again, because it's an interrupt, it couldn't be replied to or responded to except with other interrupts and so it could do some quirky things. Um, the other thing was there, there were a lot of hosers out there and so it allowed you to either um, fine-tune your own hosers or turn off your opponent's hosers. Like a very common thing you would do with this thing is imagine, for example, you are playing a blue-black deck and so you have swamps and you're playing against someone who's playing white and so they play karma. And you're like, okay, well, instead of me taking, instead of, you know, da- swamps damaging people, how about planes damage people? Um, and so it was an interesting answer for a lot of the color hosers. Is one of Blue's answers is that you could use slight and magical, slight of mind and magical hack to sort of take things that are supposed to be hosers and change them. Um, it was one of, like, Blue's answers, or the slight of mind was, to circle protections. Um, but anyway, this. It definitely was something that was very... I mean, one of the things Richard really liked was a lot of meta stuff. Blue definitely had a lot of what I call meta spells in that it's the kind of the color that kind of understands it's a game and that there's text and you can change the text, which is very um, very meta into the awareness. Like, this card's like, oh, that says Swamp Walk. Well, I can change Swamp to Planes and now it says Planes Walk. Um, but I think Magical Hack was... I don't know. It was a pretty cool spell and definitely... I think Richard loved the idea of just exploration and customization and that this card, this in Slate of Mind, really let you sort of customize what, you know, I could take a spell I had and then change it so it did something different than even what it said on the card it did. Okay, moving on. Mana Flare. So, Tuna Red is an enchantment. Uh, whenever either player taps land for mana... Each land produces one extra mana of the appropriate type. What is that? Uh, so essentially what it does is, so it costs three mana, one of which is red, and then whenever you tap a land, you get an additional uh, mana of whatever that land could produce. If a land could produce, um, I think what happened was, uh, I think whatever you produce to produce another one, I think, meaning I think if I have a City of Brass, we could tap for any color, and I tap it for red, I think Mana Flare produces another red. I don't think it produces any color it can produce. I think it matches the color he produces, how it works. Anyway, Mana Flare is very interesting. I think the existence of Mana Flare is what sort of got um, the idea of um, Mana Burn into Richard's head, I think. Um, Because without something like Mana Flare, there really was no way to Mana Burn yourself. In fact, I remember the first time I saw Mana Flare was... I didn't understand mana burn until I saw mana flare because I didn't understand how you could have mana in your pool and not have spent it on the spell. Like, why would you tap mana and put mana in your pool if you weren't going to then right away use it? Uh, and mana flare, like I saw it, like, oh, now I get it. Now I see what's going on. Ah, you could have extra mana because you don't mean to have extra mana. Um, now this is interesting that this spell, this effect ended up getting put in green. Uh, there are a lot of spells for some reason. 
I think Richard was just sort of trying to make flavorful spells, and this spell mechanically likes to go in a, um, in a you know, in a red drug damage deck that has a lot of X spells and stuff. Um, so it mechanically sort of fits with it, but it doesn't thematically fit. Red's not really the, you know, the uh, mana production color, at least especially at the time. And it's not permanent. This is permanent mana production. Red, we since gave it sort of um, temporary stuff. But this, every turn is producing mana for you. So anyway, we moved it to green. Uh, it ended up being a little too strong in green, so we haven't reprinted the green card yet. But one day, um, I, I like mana flare effects. Like I said, I also, I also like Gauntlet of Might, which essentially had a mana flare into it. So um, once again, I talked about the last time talking about my deck where I was trying to do infinite, not infinite, but lots and lots of damage. And so it, it had its four mana flares and four Gauntlets of Might and, and its four forks and stuff. Okay, next, Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. So it's a 1-1 one, one Summon Merfolk for blue, for single blue mana. Um, one of the things about... It's funny, when people talk about magic, and we, we make sure to put a, a, some number of vanilla creatures in. And usually in modern-day magic, we put in eh, about five vanilla creatures, usually about one per color. Um, and then we do a bunch of what I call French vanilla, which is like creatures that have like one keyword, usually evergreen, like it flies, it's first strike. Um, but anyway, if you look at alpha... Um, and, and people are always like, why? You know, why all these vanillas? And I'm like, look at Alpha. There's a lot of vanillas. I mean, last time I talked about Great Ogre and Grizzly Bear and Hill Giant. Now I'm talking about Merfolk of the Pearl Trident. I'll get to Mines of Gotham Raiders in a second. Um, so this was pretty generic. I mean, all it really did was it was a Merfolk. You know? and, and in fact, it was the only Merfolk. Remember, Lord of Atlantis was not a Merfolk. So if you wanted to make a Merfolk deck, the only Merfolk you had was this card. And, and the funny thing, the... The compelling thing of how strong tribal stuff is as just a strategy is a lot of people made merfolk decks back in Alpha when, I mean, remember, there wasn't a four of rule yet, which essentially was I played a whole bunch of Lord of Atlantises and a whole bunch of merfolk, you know, one-one merfolk for blue, single mana, and that was my merfolk deck. I mean, I, maybe I had a few other you know, spells in it, but, like, my creatures were this one-one and, and, a, and a two, you know, one-drop, and then a true drop that made the one drops better. Um, uh, usually what would happen also in the Merfolk deck is you had some means to turn one of their lands into an island. Um, Phantismal Terrain, uh, I guess, was probably the most commonly used one. It was just a spell that literally turned their land into a land of your choice, a basic land of your choice. And so what you would do is you take a land, maybe color screw them if you could, uh, turn it into an island, and then all of a sudden all of my creatures couldn't be blocked. And then I had an army of creatures that kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, it was actually, and because it was blue, it could have counter magic in it. So, um, oh, oh, the one other trick at the time, by the way, was uh, blue had clones. It had a clone and a human doppelganger. So one of the other tricks that would happen is um, you, you would actually have your Lord Atlantises and you'd have your merfolk and then you'd have your clones and your human doppelgangers, which could double as clones. Uh, not double as clones, double as merfolk or double as Lord Atlantises. And so um, that was another way to kind of sneak in some extra merfolk into the deck. Okay, next, Mind Twist. Mind Twist costs X and a black. It's a sorcery. Opponent must discard X cards at random. So this is a famous card because it got restricted. Or it was banned for a while, and now it's restricted. Um, it's restricted in Vintage, and I think it's banned in Legacy. Um, it is a potent, potent card. Um, the funny thing is, discard for some reason, a lot of it was at random back in the early days. I'm, I'm not a big fan of random discard, but... Uh, this one was a little silly in the random because it was an expel. Because um, the, the joke uh, usually with this card was discard random hand. 
It's like, usually I'm casting my interest, I'm making you lose all your cards. I'm not making you lose some of your cards. It's like, oh, okay, you now have three cards and I have four mana. Well, guess what? Randomly discard your hand. Um, so the random thing was kind of fun. I mean, sometimes you did it and not, not do the whole thing, and random did allow you to hit lands and things, you know, allowed you to sort of sometimes wreck their hand just because you got lucky what you hit. Um, my interest is pretty brutal, not beloved. I mean, beloved in people who love powerful spells, but um, it was a pretty potent spell, and uh, it was the cornerstone. Early magic, uh, black had two very strong and very annoying strategies. One was land destruction, because it had a two-mana um, sinkhole, land destruction spell, and also because um, it had discard, and it had some aggressive discard stuff, especially mind twist. Um, okay, next, Mons' Goblin Raiders. So uh, this is a red mana 1-1. One, one. It's a goblin. In fact, it and uh, Goblin Balloon Brigade were the two goblins. Uh, then Goblin King could uh, boost them up. Uh, the reason I bring this card up is, who is Mons? Mons' is Goblin Raiders. Mons is a guy named Mons Johnson, who is a friend of Richard's, who loves goblins. Uh, and Mons has worked at Wizards for the vast majority of the time I've worked at Wizards. Um, he left for a little while to go off to some other stuff, but he's back. Um, and Mons, Mons' love for goblins knows no bounds. That whenever he builds a deck, he, like, he, he, I've just seen him build, take any theme you can think of and then add goblins to that theme. Um, you know, Goblin Ageddon or whatever. He, he's a Goblin Stasis. Pick your thing. He's, he's figured out a way how to play that deck, but with goblins. Next, the Moxes. Mox Emerald, Mox Jet, Mox Pearl, Mox Ruby, Mox Sapphire. Okay, so Mox um, Pearl is the white one. Mox Sapphire is the blue one. Mox Jet is the black one. Mox Ruby is the red one. Mox Emerald is the green one. You can remember this because those are all plush, precious stones, the color of the thing in question. So moxes all were mono artifacts you could cast for zero, and they tap for a, a, a mana of the color. Um, so, for example, mox sapphire taps for blue, mox pearl taps for white. Exactly. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about this is the moxes when they first came, when the game first came out, they, people didn't quite get them. I didn't get them. I remember the first time I saw it, um, I told the story of trading it for a fungusaur, um, and I. As, 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 I'm swearing that I, I honestly believe I was giving my dad the better end of the bargain because I thought Fungusaur was awesome. I thought I was giving him a really cool card for a card that I hadn't seen. Um, so anyway, um, people didn't quite get it. I remember I spent a lot of time when I saw, saw the Mox Emerald like, why isn't this just a forest? And, I, and it, it took me a while to get to the, oh, because I can only play one forest a turn, but I can play as many Mox Emeralds as I have. Um, and like I said when I spoke with Land Royale earlier today, the ability to sort of leap ahead in mana is so powerful and so potent. Um, I mean, this card is... It's not vulnerable to creature destruction because it's not a creature. It's zero, so you can just play it for free. Um, it, because it's an artifact, there's a lot of positive interactions you can have with it. I mean, there's some negative because they can destroy it as an artifact, but there are a lot of positive things you could do with an artifact. So, um, But anyway, these five cards are part of what we know as the Power Nine... So the power nine are the five moxes, Black Lotus, Time Walk, Time Twifter, and Ancestral Recall, um, which are considered by many to be the, the nine most powerful cards from Alpha. Um, the, uh, there's some discrepancies between the power level of even those nine cards, but pretty powerful cards. You see those cards played in vintage tournaments. They're all, they're all restricted. Um, but anyway, the moxes are much beloved. We've definitely, on occasion, made some more moxes 
the rule for us is a mox is an artifact that costs zero that taps for mana. Um, there's additional costs we've stuck on them, but usually that's the rule to become a mox. You have to be a zero drop artifact that can tap for mana. Okay, next, Nether Shadow. So Nether Shadow was a, a creature, a shadow, summon shadow, uh, cost black, black, so two mana, both of which were black, uh, and it's a 1-1 one, one creature. Um, and the thing about it was, A, um, it can attack the turn it enters the battlefield. So it's the first creature really to have haste. Um, it's, it's, when people ask like where haste started, people think of haste as being a red thing. Um, but actually, the very first card to have haste was Nether Shadow, and there was a green card I talked about last time called Instill Energy that kind of gave pseudo-haste. So it's funny that green and black, which are the secondary and uh, or tertiary and secondary colors, are the ones that actually first showed up in Alpha. So what Nether Shadow did was it was a 1-1 creature, and at any point in time, if there were three creatures above it in your graveyard, you could spend its casting cost, its mana cost, black-black, to bring it back into play. So it was a creature that would die, but as other creatures die, it would come back. So it did something that we did for a while, which is it cares about graveyard, the graveyard order. Um, and I mean, there was neat space there to think, oh, what happens if things die? And, um, you know, Nether Shadow could do some cool things where I would sacrifice this creature so I could get my Nether Shadow back so I can, you know, use it for whatever. There's a lot of neat sort of interactions there. But uh, it came at a cost, and the cost is people having to care about their graveyard and the graveyard order. And that can be problematic, and it's just a lot of extra busyness. And there wasn't so much design space it was worth it. So after Mirage block, or actually after Tempest block, we abandoned Graveyard Order. I think Stronghold might be the last card where the Graveyard Order matters. And so we no longer do that. So um, uh, Vengeance and Legacy still have Graveyard Order matter, but um, Modern and Forward don't. And so you can, you, you can rearrange your graveyard and look at your graveyard, and you don't have to keep it all in the exact same order because there's no game relevance to it. Um, Okay, next, Nevenral's Disc. Okay, so Nevenral's Disc is an artifact that costs four, enters the battlefield tapped, uh, and then for one, uh, I guess it's a mono artifact, so one in tap, um, you sacrifice it, it destroys all creatures, enchantments, and artifacts in play. So at the time, it destroyed every permanent but lands. Um, it interestingly doesn't destroy Planeswalkers now, only because it names what it destroys. Um, so flavorfully it should, but it mechanically doesn't. Um, it also said on the card that it destroyed itself, even though clearly it's an artifact, so uh, it did destroy itself. So this was a very, very powerful card in early Magic, and the reason was one of Blue's vulnerabilities is supposed to be that it's bad at destroying things at permanence. It can steal them and bounce them, and the things it can do, but it's not supposed to easily be able to just get rid of permanence, and Nevzdis does that. And so one of the reasons that it was so powerful was it filled in a major weakness of blue. And blue is a very powerful color with very powerful spells. I just talked about the Power Nine. The Power Nine were three blue cards and uh, six artifacts, all of which the blue decks could play. You know, mono blue decks could play all of the Power Nine. And that was quite potent. Uh, and the fact that the one thing it had trouble doing, Neverall's just just came in and solved the problem for it, was quite, was, was quite problematic. Um, Nevenrol's Disc, by the way, for those that don't know it, is based on a story by Larry Niven. In fact, Nevenrol, backwards, is Larry Niven. That's an Easter egg. Um, Richard was a big fan of Larry Niven and was inspired. There's a story, I, I don't know the top of my head the name of the story, but there's a story about an object that can destroy the world, essentially. And so that was, Richard came up with that as a, as a nod to that story. And, and so Nevenrol's just definitely, um, it is a very powerful potent spell because it sort of lets you circumvent some weaknesses of some other colors, blue especially. Um, but also very popular and very much beloved because, I mean, it got played a lot. 
Okay, next is Nightmare. Nightmare is five and a black for a star, star creature. A summon Nightmare. Uh, it is flying, and its power and toughness are equal to the number of swamps you control. Um, so this was a pretty cool card. One of the early things about um, Alpha was Richard really liked the idea that black magic encouraged you to play more black magic. That black magic was the color that kind of sucked you into wanting to play a lot of itself. Um, and Nightmare was one of the cards that really helped get you there. Nightmare was a very popular early card. Um, and one of the reasons was it just gave red... I mean, you had Lord of Atlantis, which was a 7-7 flyer, but that came at a real cost. Nightmare didn't come at any cost. I mean, once you were playing mono black, it's like, okay, it's just a really big flyer. Um, and other colors had big flyers. So this was black's big flyer that didn't, you know, require you sacrificing half your team to keep it in play. Um, and as such, it was very, very popular. This was one of the cards I talked about earlier when they originally put out three shirts when Magic, the very, very first three shirts that Magic put out, and they were trying to put out things that they thought people liked. Um, and the three cards were Super Doppelganger, um, uh, Armageddon Clock, and Nightmare. And Ni- Nightmare was, the art was very popular by Melissa Benson, um, and the card was very popular. So it definitely was an early sort of fan favorite. Uh, and it's one of those cards that um, kept popping up in the core set. It's just a fun card. Um, the name is cute. It's a very cute name. Uh, you know, it, it has a nice little pun in the name. Um, but anyway, that, my friends, is Nightmare. Okay, I've gotten through end. So, uh... I'm chugging along. We've got to, oh, so I'm hoping one or two more podcasts will get through this. But anyway, that, my friends, is um, today's podcast, all about uh, Alpha and Beta Unlimited. I hope you guys are enjoying this. It's fun looking back at age-old magic. So, But anyway, I'm not in my parking space. So we all know what that means. It means the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. I'll see you guys next time.